Hello and welcome to episode number 54 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dandy Francesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, the U.S. editor of Waters Technology, Anthony Malakian. Hello. So we have a special guest today, Sean Belka, the director of Fidelity Labs, uh, joined us or joined me to talk about uh, my recent feature on virtual reality, augmented reality, and kind of the use cases and the timeline for that going forward. Um, so that's going to be the major portion of the episode. And then on the back end, Anthony and I are going to discuss a couple of things, the Super Bowl, the playoffs, um, alternative facts, and an interesting uh, interaction I had that I want to get his thoughts on. But uh, before we get into that, we'd first like to mention this week's sponsor, SmartStream, the global software and managed services provider. Uh, SmartStream works with more than 70 of the world's top 100 banks on things relating to post-trade processing, data management, automating the trade process, and workflow solutions. Yep. Uh, they were also our winner at the American Financial Technology Award this year for uh, Best Back Office Initiative. And uh, if you go to our site, you can read about uh, why they won that category. But for now, let's uh, get right into my interview with Sean Belka, the director of Fidelity Labs. All right, and I'm joined now by Sean Belka, the director of Fidelity Labs. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me today. Oh, thank you, Dan. Yeah, so Sean, I spoke to Sean um, a few about a month ago in regards to the virtual reality, augmented reality story that went live uh, today on our website, and I thought it'd be Good to bring Sean back into the fold and kind of talk um, about some of our conversations and some other things that were brought up during the research. Uh, but I think first, the most important thing we should touch on, Sean, is kind of distinguishing between virtual reality, augmented reality, and you know a third term that's kind of popped up, mixed reality. Because I think people, you know, for for the person that's not familiar with the technology, they think of VR as kind of the all-encompassing term that could, that brings in everything. But really, there's important distinctions between the two or the three, depending on how you kind of view things. So maybe could we start talking a little bit about VR, AR, and the differences between the two? Sure. So augmented reality is really just that, taking reality, you know, in other words, the physical world and augmenting it. And so an example that I can give, we used a company called uh, Rosma a few years ago to take a prospectus, which is obviously a physical object, a paper object. And when you hovered over it with, an, with, a, with a mobile phone, you were able to kind of unlock a code that then brought up a video of the fund manager talking about the particular fund. So in essence, you're augmenting reality. You have the physical reality of that prospectus, but now you're augmenting it with the video that helps give you more information. You can think about other ways to augment reality where you're looking at a particular object and something's hovering above it or something, information's coming in kind of ambiently. Uh, to help you either get more information or make sense of that physical object. Virtual reality is different. I mean, virtual reality is where it's not something that is kind of a physical object. You're creating something new. It's, it's virtual. It's not real. And so you're creating something that is uh, a, a separate experience. And so when you look at virtual reality, and we've done some experiments here as well, you know, whether it's with a, something like Oculus Rift or HTC Vive, where the experience is fully virtual. It, it's been created by us. It, it exists in these virtual reality um, kind of frameworks, whether that's Oculus or HTC Vive or there's many others. Um, and so it, it's really not part of the real world. It's a virtual world. And then mixed reality 
is really kind of a hybrid of the two where you might have a real and a virtual world brought together in a way where the physical and the digital objects kind of coexist. Um, you know, perhaps they interact in real time, but it, so they, they are different. Augmented reality is about taking the physical object exists, augmenting or putting information on top of them. Virtual reality is about creating something anew that, that is really completely constructed in a virtual world. And then the mixed reality is, is combining the two in, in some new and different way. So you do see a distinction between AR and MR, because I know from doing some research and talking to some people, some people kind of view it as, oh, it's it's essentially AR, and there isn't. It's tough to really distinguish between the two. But you feel they are kind of two separate areas. I believe Microsoft, uh, the Hololens, kind of really staked its claim on calling itself mixed reality as opposed to while other people would just call it augmented reality. You think there is, uh, or you view it as two separate kind of uh, spaces. I mean, I think they're evolving spaces, and I don't think these are, you know, bright lines in some ways. But I, I do think that it, there is a hybrid nature to kind of what I think people mean by mixed reality. Um, and and so I think over time, you know, people will create experiences that combine various elements. So whether we want to call that mixed reality, I mean, I could I could buy the argument that it's augmented reality because you're you're taking a physical object and augmenting with something virtual. So I I don't think it's a kind of you know, a, a extremely uh, hard and fast kind of differentiation there, but that that's the way we look at it. And when we're because our goal is just to create great experiences for customers, so we're less concerned about whether it's AR, VR, or mixed reality. Our our goal is really what information would a customer need? How would adding one of these elements make it a more visceral or visual or compelling experience? And so we're kind of, in some ways, not so concerned about definitions and more about how do you create an awesome experience that helps people see their finances in a new way that gives them new information they did, wouldn't have gotten otherwise that's powerful in terms of helping them derive insights that inevitably lead them to take actions that improve their outcomes. So I, I think we're we're probably more on the pragmatic side of it as opposed to the academic side of it. And that gets me to the next point, which is we had a conversation about kind of use cases for AR and use cases for VR. And some of the people I spoke to were kind of just not this, I don't want to say dismissive, but we're more so that we see the future being AR for financial services. We see use cases being for for AR, it's not it doesn't close off the the rest of the world like like VR does. We think that'd be that'd be better for what we're looking to use it for. You, on the other hand, had more of a a view kind of to your point about we're just looking to help you know improve the customer experience. You said it was kind of early days in the space, and we're looking at AR for consumer and you know and um and enterprise, and we're looking at VR for for consumer and enterprise. Talk a, a little bit because I I agree with you that it is early days, and I think it's tough to kind of pigeonhole yourself into one or the other. Talk about why you think there are benefits to both AR and VR implementations. I think if if you look at our goal, again, around great experiences and great outcomes for customers and kind of then what's the toolkit you have to do that? And I think in the AR space, taking physical objects like the example or prospectus and augmenting that with information clearly adds value to customers. It gives them a way to understand that information in a new and different way. And so I think I can see people's argument that that's going to be really useful. We have a lot of information, financial services that augmenting it will help people get deeper levels of understanding or insight. On the VR front, I, uh, however, I think there's opportunities to create, as an example, like simulations or other things that 
will also give people insight. And so if we were to create, as an example, people want to learn about retirement investing. And if you think about retirement, you know, most people retire only once and it's after a long period of time. And if they did it well, uh, good for them. If they didn't, there are really uh, not a lot of redo opportunities. And if you think about VR creating simulations where you could kind of be able to simulate what would your life be like if you made these certain types of choices and how would it look in retirement and you know you were able to do multiple rounds of that and that's how people learn you know they 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 have an experience they get an outcome they then adjust they repeat et cetera et cetera so I think there are opportunities to help people learn in a virtual reality experience that are yet untapped and so so I think for us we're not going to close off one or the other we're fairly agnostic about these things and we don't you know we're not in the AR or VR business we're in the customer experience customer outcomes business and so you know for us it's a, it, we want to keep the the toolkit as broad as possible now over time things may evolve and we may say wow there's been tremendous progress in AR and and then we'll adjust our portfolio. But at this very early stage, um, we're pretty wide open to whatever's going to work best for customers and, and want to kind of have that aperture be as wide as possible. Um, at some point in time, that may change, but we are certainly not there yet. Yeah, I think it's a great point about kind of a, a learning experience. I had one person talk to me about how the, the use of VR can really be about explaining kind of complex or which there are plenty of in obviously the financial markets, complex issues or topics and kind of making it a lot more easier to grasp, which maybe AR wouldn't. I mean, I guess it, it could, but I think that VR can really benefit uh, firms in, in that insight. Um, I get, Let's move to specific implementations because you guys have done a lot of work in the VR and AR space, um, kind of ahead, ahead of the curve of a lot of other firms, specifically at you know Fidelity Labs. I guess we could start with um, the Stock City um, kind of uh, thing that you guys have done with, with the Oculus Rift. Can you maybe explain a little bit about what that whole entire project was about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think about for people's portfolios, a big part about it is do you actually understand your investments and your level of diversification? And there are many tools out there today to help people to do that. And so you can, you know, you have pie charts, you have various 3D visualizations. And we took an approach that said, what if we created uh, a city that represented the market? So neighborhoods were sectors, the size of a building were the size of like market caps of stocks. And and if you were able to then put your portfolio, so in some ways maybe this is mixed reality because you're taking actual your data and you're putting it into a virtual environment, and you were to look at your portfolio as a city, would you be able to glean insights that you might not otherwise? And so in the case of some of our associates, when they did that, they found out that the technology neighborhood was wildly populated and lots of activity there, but maybe consumer packaged goods had nothing in it or healthcare had nothing in it. And so they probably invested where they where they were familiar. And that makes sense, but that's probably not a wise choice for them. And so it gave them the insight that perhaps they should have been able to get by looking at some other type of information. But this made it much more visual and visceral. It was like, wow, my my city is wildly overweighted in this particular neighborhood. Does that really make sense? Is that going to get me the outcome I seek? Is that the level of risk I, I really want to take? Or is it just risk I've, I've taken without fully understanding it? And so I think... You know, that way of looking at the information provided insights in a more powerful way than they might have otherwise 
um, achieved. And so I think those are the types of examples where we're trying to experiment and, and say, is this the type of thing that we could apply to other domains? Like, are there other aspects of their financial lives? Like budgeting, or are there or savings behavior, or are there other aspects of investing behavior beyond just kind of stock diversification? Could it be asset class diversification? Are there other ways of thinking about that? But you know, the goal is: will this provide a higher level of insight to customers that will enable them to take actions that get them better outcomes? So it's really, if we keep that as a true north, then it's really which of the tools, whether it's virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, help us to achieve that. And that's that's kind of our experimentation approach. We have a very clear idea of what we're trying to achieve. We're we're very agnostic as to the, the the how that gets solved, and so how do we continue to experiment? And these platforms are changing all the time. Um, you know, there there's new ones coming on. They're they're able to do new things, and so I think that will be another factor as we continue to to kind of create experiments in the space. Yeah, and then I know you also more recently did some work with HTC Vive around a, a kind of a, a human resources platform similar to Stock City in terms of the visualization aspect, but more on the for a firm's uh, human resources department. Yeah, I mean, a big part, if, you, if you're the head of human resources for a large organization, uh, you really care about your your employees and are they on track for a great retirement and and that there's a lot of complex information involved in that are they participating in retirement programs at what level um, are they properly asset allocated so they're likely to get good returns um, and you want to understand various populations within your employee base and look at their behaviors as it relates to those various dimensions of, of re- retirement readiness. And so what we did with the HTC Vive kind of application was enable people to view their employee base as if they were sitting in kind of like a stadium-style seating. And so you could look at them. I want to look at them by age. And then we color-coded on dimensions. So how many people are participating? Red, not green, yes. Uh, how many people are actually going up to the company match, as an example, or how many people are properly asset allocated And so versus their age? And so you could begin to kind of take these different views. Maybe I should look at it by location. Maybe I should look at it by job type. Maybe I should look at it by tenure with a company. But again, these inf- these this information is available today in, in maybe tabular reports or spreadsheets. But would this way of being able to toggle through this information make it more visceral, make it more uh, clear about patterns that are out there that may not have been so clear, make it possible to detect new patterns that you might not have seen otherwise. And so, you know, the goal for that that head of human resources is they want to have a workforce that's fully engaged in, in planning for their future, taking advantage of their benefits. And, and, you know, is this a tool that enables them to spot areas where they can improve or places where things are going really well that they could, they could build upon? Yeah. And, and to that uh, point, you know, you, you're talking about how Stock City and these different type of platforms are also kind of a jumping off point for looking at how can we do this in other areas. Have you looked at, I know those are the two of the biggest projects you guys have already completed. Are there other areas that you're looking at in terms of AR and VR implementations? I know we also spoke about the potential for back office implementations and kind of how folks working at data centers or, or you know, databases and kind of have all 
augmented reality over to help them work with like the maintenance of that kind of stuff. What are there other areas that you guys are investigating? Maybe you haven't gone full in on and actually started projects, but that are really interesting for you in in the VR and AR space. Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, if you look for AR as an example, if you have people working in data centers and they're looking at a particular, you know, machine or a router or a switch or whatever, it would be great to be able to bring in information, you know, in an augmented way that told them what that was, what the implications are of doing something with it, gave them instructions of potentially how to fix it. Could that come in real time to them as they looked at it, recognize what it was? You know, today people look at stuff, they have the experience to do it, or maybe they consult a manual or they look on a website. But could we bring that information real time to the point of action? You could also think about it for a customer facing associate, someone who's on our phones, one of our financial representatives on the phones. Could you bring information to them that that really enabled them to get real-time information that would be useful to help a customer. And so some ways they may be looking at particular parts of information or pieces of information about a customer, but could you ambiently bring in other information in a way that would help them into a headset, into kind of some type of visual field? Um, And I think those are things we're going to look at, you know, because, again, the goal for both of those is do they have the information they need to do their job as well as they can at the exact time they need it? And are they able to acquire that information in a really efficient manner? And I think that these these mechanisms, particularly AR in this case, could be a delivery vehicle for that. Um, I think we'll see over time. We haven't done a lot of experiments there. We're trying to collect some of the use cases to see you know, on the one axis, if you will, where is their value to our associates in, in getting them this information? How how many, how scaled is that? And then on the other axis is really getting to how mature is the technology? Is it ready to be able to do that? Is this something that is not just going to be kind of more of a science experiment, but is this something, if, if this works, that is ready for scaling that we could bring out to thousands of associates? So I think we're continuing to look at both of those. And the, go- the goal, obviously, is to find places where this would be very valuable to the firm, and it is shovel-ready. The technology is in place. It's ready to scale. And, and our goal is to be ready right at that point. And so to do that, we have to be a little bit early, obviously, so that we can begin to experiment with it before it's ready to scale so that when it is ready to scale, we're not starting from scratch. We've already maybe done a few experiments, gotten a lot of associate or customer feedback, learned how we can improve it. And, and then at the point of, of, of scaling, um, we're ready to go. So that's really the, the when it comes down to it. That's the million dollar question when it comes to AR, VR. I mean, really any type of new technologies. When is it going to be scalable? When are we going to see big implementations? I know that it's you know it's always tough to predict these type of things, but your your mindset is more on the short end of the scale as opposed to you know we're a decade away. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I remember that from our our previous conversation. What in your mind is the biggest thing holding it back? Is it the maturity of the technology? Is it just people getting more accustomed to uh, using it and kind of the adoption rate? What do you think is the biggest thing kind of holding VR, AR technology back? And when do you really see it kind of tipping where it's going to start being implemented at an enterprise level? I, I still do think it's hard to make predictions about exact timing, but if you look at 
what factors would need to be in place for something to go scale? You would have to have the technology at price points that made it scalable. And, you know, as you see, the, these devices are, are, are continuing to be lower cost. You would have to have enough of them out there that, you know, if you had applications that, that it would be useful to people. And that's going to be driven by price, by availability, by other applications, because our, our, the applications we're, we're suggesting for people in the consumer side are certainly not going to be the primary application they use it. So it's, it's, they're going to acquire these headsets for gaming or entertainment or to preview travel or real estate. Do we come on as another application? Um, and so I think there'll be a curve of that. And then in the enterprise, I think it's really where I think there's more opportunity to, you know, in some ways accelerate adoption as opposed to wait for it to happen in the consumer space. I think it's really finding these use cases that are highly valuable, you know, and the the the, the barrier to adoption there, I think, is really uh, the work around proving the business value. So doing the pilots, getting the user feedback, seeing how it helped people to do their jobs better, and then making the case for scaling it out. So I think there are slightly, you know, slightly different factors that are going to drive adoption here, um, and we're going to look at both. You know, how is it playing out in the consumer space, and where are there opportunities to drive more rapid adoption in the enterprise space? Um, and I, I think that those curves may not be the same, and, and um, we're, we're, we're not so much interested in, in making predictions about when it's going to happen. We're interested in being prepared when it does. Yeah, how much does that speak to, I think this is a point you, you'd made previously, that this is kind of the, the macro trend we're seeing really in the industry where the tech on the consumer side, the tech at home is improving quicker a lot of times than the tech in the workplace. And that's then pushing the tech to kind of jump over into the workplace. I mean, the, the best example I always think of this is kind of firms BYOD policies. And it kind of starts out, everybody has a BlackBerry. It's easy to implement the security strong on it. And then people start getting accustomed to new type of smartphones. They get accustomed to their Samsungs or their Apples, their iPhones. And they kind of force and push firms to kind of re- Rethink their mobile strategy. Could you see a similar thing happening in the in the VR AR space? Yes, I think if you look at you know, it, I think mobile is a great example. I think social is another example where people are used to interacting in a particular way in their personal lives and want to bring that into the workplace. Um, so I think I think this will be another example where I, over time I think people will get used to interacting with data in this way or getting information in this way. And they'll say, wait a second, you know, this works in my personal life, can it work here? Um, you know, if you look at mobile, you know, the, the, the adoption thing, uh, kind of timeframes in retrospect always look faster than they felt when you were going through them. And I think, you know, we say me something similar here. I mean, you look at, um, we actually at Fidelity had, um, basically trading on, on, on Blackberries and two-way pagers in 1998. Um, but it really didn't come to kind of full scale. And probably until like iPhone three, you know, possibly 15 years after that. So, so I think I don't know what that time scale will be here in terms of when something is is available in the marketplace, and then when there's actually a relatively high level adoption that then comes back into the workplace. But that the, the, we're trying to look at those curves and and figure that out and um, and be prepared for it. Um, but I do see something somewhere where the consumerization of IT. Um, where people get very familiar with these things in the consumer space, and then they help them manage their lives in the consumer space, and then they ask the question, could this also help me manage my work, and, and how can I bring this into the workplace in a way that makes sense? 
Well, Sean, we we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with us today. Um, you know, it's great to get more of, of initial, additional insight on the topic. I think it's one that a lot of firms are going to want to keep their eye on going forward. So, again, Sean Belka, the director of uh, Fidelity Labs. Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Dan. So I'm back now here with Anthony Malikian, and uh, we want to touch on a couple non-fintech-related topics. And to start, I had, today is Thursday, I had an interesting interaction this morning. I didn't tell Anthony about this. I want to get his perspective. I can tell he's got a Cheshire grin. He's excited to hear excited, what yeah, I'm going to say. I want your take on if yeah. I'm bad, if I'm good, if, if if I was wrong or if I was right. Doing things on the fly is dangerous with us, but you know. Well, okay, you know, I'm good. you know, I'm bold. Okay. So let me preface this this conversation or this story by saying that I am extremely non-confrontational, and I think Tony, Anthony, you've known me for two and a half years now. You know, socially more than just professionally. I'm not the type of person to get into a fight with someone, to pick a fight. Now, I will preface this by saying that I am argumentative and I like to debate people, but those are my friends, right? People that I'm comfortable with. If I don't know you... And when he gets like really pissed off at a time, I'll go, fine, fine, whatever. And then he just kind of throws his hands up and he just... And that's that. I'm not the, you know, despite my larger stature, I'm not one to try to intimidate people or bully people. That's just not... That's never been my style, right? So today, gentle giant, gentle giant, gentle giant would be a good way to to describe me, I guess you could say. So today I'm I'm on the subway. I live in the Upper East Side, so I take the six down one stop. I live on 95th and Third. Come visit. Um, I live on. (laughs) I take the six stop one stop down to 86th Street, and then I transfer to the four five downstairs. So if you're familiar with the four five line, it's typically a uh, a mess i would say a dumpster fire we'd be putting it lightly yeah. always crowded always usually have to wait for trains you know so typical protocol is that you wait outside the doors you let the people off and then you go on mm-hmm. so today actually wasn't a bad day at all there wasn't a lot of people waiting i go to my spot you know if you ride the subway every day you know where the doors open so you go to your spot yep. you know and so i get to my spot and uh the doors open it's a pretty packed train um, but I can see in the background that there's a, a woman getting ready and getting up to go out. So I'm kind of first in line, me and another guy are on the opposite sides of the door. And at the corner of my eye, I see somebody like start charging forward while this woman's trying to try to get in front of him and start walking. So more so reactionary than anything, I throw out my arm, kind of like if you stop short <laughs> and I put my hand on the guy's chest and I go, oh, hold on. Someone's trying to get off right now. So we're going to have to wait. And I have my headphones in. I don't even pause my podcast, and I can tell it looks like I pissed in his Cheerios, right? <laughs> this guy is yeah. not happy, yeah. okay? And if I would have to describe him, he kind of looks like uh, John Lick was a mixture of John Leguizamo, right, yeah. from Mo- Romeo and Juliet and yeah, a bunch yeah, of other yeah. fame, uh, and uh, Joe Latrugio, who you don't know the name, but he's been in Pineapple Express. He's been in Super Bad. He's the weird guy that gives him a ride that hits uh, Jonah Hill's character with his car, okay. yeah. right? He's got. It was like a mixture of that. He was tall. He had one of those um, kind of cabbie hats on, long hair. He was disheveled. He looked like probably like a writer or some failed profession that you know was getting up early and he had to go somewhere he wasn't used to being up early and he just looks like are you kidding and i hear the first thing i hear which i bro don't touch me don't don't don't, don't you dare touch me don't think fair, you touch that's me a fair thing that's a fair thing but. so the woman gets off and we get on we step on and then he's in my ear wait you're not gonna step in literally there's nowhere for me to go so I turn around and I say, where would you like me to go? I look him down and I go, where would you like me to go? There's a, a shorter guy standing around for me. I said, would you like me, what would you like me to do in this? He doesn't say anything, right? 
So we wait on the train, and then a couple stops go, and he gets off, right? Yeah. Now, was I in the wrong for what I did? Well, let's see here. I guess it's two parts here, because there is a bit of chivalry there, you know, that you're allowing a woman to get off the train. She's or getting off the train. Getting off the train, you know, and, and it's proper protocol. Put your hands on somebody. I don't know. That's that can be dangerous. You know, that, I wouldn't like if somebody threw their hand in my chest. You know. Now, oh, I will. Pre- again, I. It was more of if you've ever, you know, you know, when you stop the car short and the driver kind of instinctually throws the arm out, kind of as a barrier. It wasn't like I grabbed him, right? Yeah. And I didn't push yeah. him. It was more of like a bars coming down to stop someone. I yeah. did think about it. I did feel feel kind of bad because you never want to. And I'm not the type to, you know, put hands on anybody. But it wasn't meant like that. It was basically meant like. Dude, you need to chill because everyone's going to wait. And most of all, you're not going to cut me. Because let's be called spade a spade. He was looking to cut everybody waiting yeah. and push his way in and just get onto the train. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I guess you're in the right. You know, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't do that. You know, um, but then again, I don't ever take the train. I take the ferry. You know, it's much, you know, so I, we don't have these kind of interactions um, in uh, my thing. I guess the, the, the one thing that I remember was one time I'm staying in line um, to get onto the ferry. And, you know, it's just like a regular line. Somebody just walks right up and just pops right down. Like, I'm, like, the second person in line. Just, like, pops right in front of us and just kind of there. I'm like, eh, it's like I could have said something. But I'm like, what is it in your head that, you know, that what makes gives you, you think right. that special? Why, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why do you I think, know. what? Oh, oh, are you running late or something? I, I don't care. Like, everybody's running late. faster, you know, exactly. you get onto it. And yeah. you're literally just sh- slowing down the process. And I know I'm a big proponent of eyes down, don't talk to anyone on the subway. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if... If there's a bum could have done something terrible or someone could be crazy, I don't, you know, I, I don't interact with anybody on the subway. Yeah. I put my headphones in and I just, but I don't know what spurred me to do it, but I threw the arm out the and arm out. then he just started jawing my ear. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, heroes are made one little thing at a time, right? I mean, and you know, that's basically... Not all heroes wear cape. Yeah, you know, I, I would, it would have been nice to get a little more support yeah. from the, the, the yeah, people the, surrounding me that are waiting. This, yeah, know, groundswell of, yes, yeah. Like a little yes. slow clap, like, yeah, yes. Right on, yes, brother. Yes, subway, subway hero, you did it. Yeah. Uh, didn't happen. Yeah, the jawing on the train, that would drive me insane. Like, that would make me lose my mind well, if somebody I, I started didn't, jawing to I, me. I heard the don't touch me, but then I, I heard... I didn't hear anything else because I was listening to the podcast and I wasn't going to make an effort... To listen, because I knew that would annoy me even more. I am interested in what he said, but also the other thing too is, I I was in a weird situation because the second you bring that onto the train, then you become the crazy people on the train. Because yeah. that's what I think. Oh, when yeah. I'm on the train and I hear two people arguing yeah. about anything, like I we get on, so we're all the way downtown. So I get on at Bowling Green. By the time the train hits Fulton, the four or five, again it's it's a mess, and yeah. people are trying to push in. You always hear push in, push in, and don't push me, don't push me. You, you know, you hear that back and forth yeah. from people, and I always think those people are crazy. Like you're interacting with people in the subway, yeah. and I realize I was one of those you're crazy of those people, people today. Yeah. But you know yeah. what? I stand by, and if I see him tomorrow, I I would do the same thing. Okay. I would do the same thing again. Well, you like know? you said, he's probably a failed writer or yeah. something like that. I, I, said, I threw so. that little dig yeah. in. Yeah, that was exactly. a little dig I threw yeah. in. So uh, if that guy happens to be listening to the podcast. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. That would be great. Please call in. Let us know. Let it's us like know. It's connection kind of a thing. <laughs> um, more important than my awkward uh, subway interactions, yes. some important stuff went down. Uh, what do you, would you rather talk Super Bowl playoffs first, or would you rather talk alternative facts? Go alternative facts first, since that's a little bit heavier, and then we'll le- lighten things up with uh, the Go football. out on a high note. Yeah, exactly. 
So, yeah, uh, talk so, about stuff we actually know about. You know? <laughs> so, alter- interesting week. Yeah, alternative facts. You have the EPA. You have Twitter accounts of random South Dakotian national parks tweeting about climate change. Uh, as a journalist, what's your perspective on this alternative well, guess, facts? So, just in case you, you haven't you know, been totally filled in, uh, one of Trump's uh, main spokespeople, um, Kellyanne Conway, she was on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, and I was actually watching this live um, with uh, my girlfriend. And then she said, "He, Sean Spicer, uh, the White House press secretary, talking in the stupidest argument, debate, whatever it is, ever, that, that has truly ever been in front of a White House podium, um, talks about the crowd size at the Trump inauguration compared to uh, Obama's administration. Who cares? It was a rainy day. Who cares? Like, you're the president – there were, there were a lot of people there. It doesn't have to be bigger than Obama's. Who cares? But he goes on and says, no, ours was absolutely bigger, even though there is – literally you can look at photos and see that. This is unprompted too, I believe. This yeah, is this the is, first thing. He, he like he, walked up to the podium and said this right away Chuck without – Todd's like, why did you guys send him out to fight this point as his first time getting in front of the White House press corps? This is going to be the thing. You're going to have him go up there. This is the hill you're going to die Yell at him, say, this definitely is true, and then not take any questions, walk away. It was idiocy. You know, at its best. Kellyanne Conway goes and used the famous term, uh, you know, well, you people say this. Sean Spicer was presented alternative facts. Alternative facts are lies or just falsehoods, whatever the hell you want to call them. So this is just send everybody spiraling. You have the extreme debates of alternative facts means our democracy is going to end. No, as a journalist, just do your freaking job. All right. This is. This has been throughout every presidency, throughout anything. Somebody presents alternative facts. You say, no, here is what we know. Here are our sources saying exactly what we know as being true. And we move on. Every time the Trump administration goes and puts out alternative facts, lies, whatever, you go and you report it, but you don't take a bias on it. You don't start flipping out saying this is the end of our democracy. And the interesting thing I think that's that's happening right now with the media is that Donald Trump, uh, he's basically – Jack Schaefer of Politico, uh, who looks at the media. I've mentioned him before on his podcast. Um, love the guy. But uh, he kind of talks about uh, – he had an article, Trump is now assigning the news. And basically every single time that Trump or one of his people goes tweets something crazy, uh, signs as, – as Jack Schaefer said, signs some toothless but incendiary document or just says something that's a little bit weird or one of his people says something a little bit weird – the column inches that are being spent, not at blogs, the Washington Post, um, page one of this was, I think, from Monday, had, as Jack Schaefer uh, noted, had of six front page stories, four dealt with some sort of Trump aspect or action, um, and all eight editorial op-eds were about Trump. New York Times, same day, um, of, the, of the six stories on page one, four were about tr- uh, Trump with 11 more tucked inside. Of the editorial pages, five of the seven pieces dealt with Trump. This is overflow, guys, okay? We have to start saving the anger for things that are worthy of anger, I think. And when there are lies, when there are, your job as a reporter is simply to interview experts, interview them, and in a non-biased way, lay out what the facts are. And that will save the democracy. Don't worry. We'll be okay. So that's my take on it. Well, I think – so I think it's interesting because I don't remember uh, 
one I, I don't remember who it was, but someone kind of wrote a blog post or a Facebook post about how because these are such volatile times, this is prime for you to do your best reporting as as a journalist, right? Yes. This is your chance to get your Pulitzer, right? <laughs> to catch them with their pants down, right? To to do your Watergate, to have your deep throw. This is your chance because, you know, and we can use the parks and the EPA. There's a bunch of disgruntled people across the government now because of Trump coming in that aren't happy with this. that are going to be willing to talk about things they normally wouldn't talk about and help you get a leg up. So to your point, instead of just kind of moaning, oh, this is terrible, this is so bad. We all understand this is not ideal, this is not great. Now, do something that can make a change. And by doing something, report the facts and, and you can get really... Sources, get in with people, know what's happening inside of the Trump administration. That's your job. But that the problem is that's hard. That's difficult. Yeah. That takes a lot of work. It's easy for me as a reporter just to say, Trump is terrible. Trump sucks. We hate it. This is awful. This is the end of democracy. And I'll get yeah. my 100 I retweets. So, and I'll get you know, my 500 yeah. retweets. And I'll get on put on yeah. podcasts. And I'll get praised as this guy's so smart. What's difficult is to go out there. But what is possible to go out there and figure out, okay, this is exactly what's being done wrong. Report on it over and over again, and that can lead to change. I mean, we've seen journalists can take down presidents. Like, it can happen. It has happened. And hold them accountable. That's what your job is. That's if you are in that space. You know, obviously, you know, we're on uh, the the very low end of a pond here. (laughs) But if we write about regulation and what they're doing and what's good and what's bad, that's what our job is. How does it connect to the readers? Well, that's what every journalist does. You have a readership. And so when you work for the Times or the Post or whatever, you know, you have a readership and a responsibility to do your job. And just commenting on every single little tweet that he does, he is driving the news. And he knows this. If you think he's dumb in that respect, no, he understands. He is the puppet master right now because he knows there's a bad report or something that comes out. He does something crazy on Twitter, and everybody, rather than talk about this substantial piece of legislation or uh, agenda piece that he's talking about, everybody starts rushing over to the sensational tweet. Be better than that. Be better at your job. You know, rather than just this sniping, I swear to God, people need to stop sending me stuff like these think pieces, these opinion pieces. I don't give a crap about opinion. What is a well-reported story? Send that around. Let's start looking. That's our problem right now. We get so upset about Trump's alternative facts, but then we always, everybody, whether, you know, if, especially if you're on the left, you send out, you know, oh, well, here's this opinion piece. Here's this, this slate think piece on what alternative facts are and why it's the end of democracy. You are just dabbling then in opinion. You are dabbling in think It's not progressing like the conversation that. forward. There are real journalists out there. Um, Fahrenheit, uh, the guy from um, uh, the Washington Post that's uh, been doing all that stuff. I can't remember his first name off the top of my head right now. Um, that's real journalism. That's, you know, he's going out. He's researching. He's getting sources. Read those. Send those stories around. Stop sending around opinion pieces. Stop having the media tell you what to think. Stop watching these stupid cable news shows that are telling you what's right and what's wrong, whether you're a right-wing guy or a left-wing guy whatever. Start reading actual reported stories and send those stories around. Let that be the legacy of the Trump administration, that we stopped caring about opinion pieces and started caring about real reported stories. And please don't hold that to our opinion pieces on waters. <laughs> I was just yeah, thinking of the back of my mind. As we sit here and posture and talk about a bunch of different stuff and – yeah, I'm like, wow, this is we're really putting ourselves in a hole here. Yep. This is gonna be tough. Yep. 
So right. uh, that's my opinion, well, and uh, you should listen to my opinion and not listen to other opinions. Let's descend from Mount Pius, and yeah. let's get off our high horse. And uh, talking about something, like you said, a little bit more light and more fun, uh, mm-hmm. the NFL playoffs. Yes. Your team, the New England Patriots, yes. is in the Super Bowl, uh, seventh time with Tom seventh Brady time. and Belichick. Yep. Um, ninth time overall, right? Yep. Uh, against the Atlanta Falcons. Not, you know, you look at when the playoffs started, a lot of appetizing matchups. Probably not what the NFL was hoping for in terms of... Terrible playoffs as far as... Terrible playoffs. One good playoff game. I mean, some would argue that the Steelers-Chiefs game was good. I think that that was boring. Very boring. Interesting (laughs) ending, but terrible to watch. Really. But one fantastic game. Probably one of the all-time great playoff games. Yeah, Green Bay. Packers-Green Bay. Um, But has not been exciting. Pats right now are three-point favorites. What what are your thoughts going into the game? Pats have never... in, In this... Era, they haven't blown any teams out in the Super Bowl in the fourth. They've won the, the two that they lost. They were winning in the last minute before losing it. Every game's been close. There's no reason to think that this game won't be close. Quinn has proven himself to be a great coach down there in Atlanta. Um, and defense coordinator for Seattle, you know, he knows how to game play. He's familiar with this team um, playing against them in the Super Bowl. So there's no reason to think that um, that this won't be a competitive game. I was actually interested in the over-under. It's the highest ever. I think it's 57, 58, something like that. I think it might be even 60. So highest ever, and that surprised me because usually in the Super Bowl, and especially you know under with a Bill Belichick coach team having two weeks to prepare, they're pretty good at neutralizing um, the other offense. And the Patriots you know, haven't exactly lit it up in their Super Bowls. So I, I think that this is going to be like one of those 24-21 kind of a games. Um, I'll go with the Patriots 24-21 as my prediction, um, assuming everybody's healthy. And so going a push. Into or what's that? So a push. A push, yeah. You're not giving the points. Vegas knows what they're doing, right? <laughs> Vegas knows Vegas always doing. knows. They know what they're doing. Vegas always knows. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised it was only three because, you know, we talked about this earlier. You figure you want to – the whole point of a line is to make sure you get equal – money on each side yeah. pats much bigger fan base right they're considered a public team right the joe public knows them and will bet them so you'd think the line would be shade more towards the falcons to get more interest but apparently three is what they have um it's funny too because like falcons you know they really could they kind of came out of nowhere like i didn't really watch any other games maybe i'm more of an afc guy anyway but I don't really recall watching any of their games. Well, they're not in a sexy. Season. They're not in a sexy division, right? Yeah. The, I mean, you know, the NFC South is kind of just blah. Like a great offense has been lighting it up, and usually great offenses get a lot of pub. They like Oakland got a lot more publicity sure. this year than Atlanta got. I think because for right, rightly or not, Matt Ryan's kind of been stigmatized as ah, it's not. You know, he, yeah. he's not really. He's not the guy. He's never going to be the big guy. Yeah. And this year, I mean, he's probably going to be the MVP. He was all pro. He deserves he's, to be MVP. He's proven that he can do it, and the Falcons have proven that he can do it. So I just hope for a good game. I'm just so sick of these terrible football games. You know, you get excited. You think, oh wow, like you know, uh, uh, Green Bay, Atlanta. You think uh, New England, uh, it's, um, Pittsburgh. These are going to be fantastic games. And just time after time, we've been disappointed. So I hope it's a good game. If I had to make a pick, I think the Pats. I think the fact that they've been to so many Super Bowls, a lot of guys that are comfortable being in the spotlight. You know, on the other end, you have a lot of guys that aren't. And to your point, Belichick, you know, and I mean, it's you can't really use the example last week just because Le'Veon got hurt. But Belichick does a great job of neutralizing the biggest threats. Yeah. How they do that with Julio Jones, I'm not sure, but... I don't think Muhammad Jones will be held to 70 quiet yards. I think something like that. You know, that, that's yeah. neutralize him completely. He right. Just 
they don't they don't kill you. They're, yeah, they're I think Muhammad Sanu is a classic example of a two that needs to stay a two, and he'll never be a one. I think that he lives in thr- he thrives on the fact that Julio draws so much attention. But if the pressure is really on him, I don't think he can produce. And then. I mean, they have they have quality running backs, so that's going to be interesting. But I think at the end of the day, I think the Pats' defense will be able to hold them, and I think they will win. You went four for four in a divisional round. How'd you do in the wild card? Because I know you picked Green Bay over. I picked Green Bay, and I said Green Bay over um, Atlanta, and I said New England. So I went one one and one. Uh, I mean, not much of a stretch because they were minus six, but I don't think. But I would I would take New England, and I would I would take the points as well. I'll put the three up. I'm I'm confident in them. I'm taking the under on that. you know, if gambling was legal. Um, if gambling was legal. Yeah. Well, it's legal in some states. <laughs> um, so that's about it. Before we go, uh, it's worth noting, Sell Side Technology Awards uh, take place April 5th in New York. The deadline for entries are Monday, February 6th, which is a week from Monday. Get them in, folks. Uh, Get them in. 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 a.m. Uh, British uh, Time is Monday, February 6th. 30 categories, 28 are open to entry. Four new categories this year. Uh, best distributed ledger technology project, uh, best artificial intelligence technology, best use of agile, and best alliance or partnership. So again, Monday, February 6th, uh, 3 a.m. Eastern, uh, 30 categories, 28 open for entry. Um, And also thanks again to the sponsor of this week's episode, SmartStream. Uh, For more information on SmartStream solutions, uh, be sure to go to www.smartstream-stp.com. Anthony, you got anything else for us? I don't think I'm going to be here next week. So I'm going to be down in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, with uh, f- visiting family. So uh, if, if I'm not, then uh, everybody enjoy the Super Bowl and uh, have a good week. Yeah, it will be either a fun episode in two weeks or a not-so-fun episode in two weeks of you either basking in glory or me making fun of you and shaming you for the loss. So. The Jets fan, yeah, that will be tough <laughs> for me to take, I'm sure. So thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, be sure to tune back in next Thursday. 